Welcome to the AutoML podcast. Today is a conversation between Ankush Garg, fellow co-host here, and Rishi Bomasani. Rishi is a PhD student at Stanford and one of the originators of the term foundation models. Today they're going to be talking about the origins of the term, which he and his group advanced in their paper on the opportunities and risks of foundation models. They're going to be talking about self-supervision, issues of scale, the motivation behind the terminology, the origins of the Research for Foundation Models Institute, outcome homogenization, emergence, and phase transitions, and some of the social consequences that we should be looking out for. Thank you both for having this conversation. As the world is coming to terms with GPT-4 now, this line of research is going to be increasingly relevant. Ankush, take it away. Welcome to the podcast, Rishi. How are you doing? Good. How are you? I'm doing very well, very well. So we've had a lot of folks on this podcast who have used large language models, large pre-trained models, or what you're calling foundational models. And so I'm really excited to chat with you today as the, the topic of foundation model is very dear to me. I suspect we have a lot of room to cover, so we'll just get started. So in the paper, on the opportunities and risks of foundation models, you've mentioned the word foundations 1,500 times. So what are foundation models? Yes, thanks. Great question. So yeah, I mean, the first thing to say is, I guess the name has been a topic of lots of conversation, but what we're trying to get at in this work is, you know, we're seeing this kind of phenomena or paradigm emerge in AI. And what we wanted to do is try to identify sort of not just sort of technically, but maybe more sociologically, like why this is important. And the way we're thinking about foundation models is that they're models that you build. So right now, maybe we can talk about how they're built. So usually the methods are, are using self-supervision and deep learning. And part of the point of those types of methods is that they can be scaled effectively. And so these models can be trained on tremendously large data sets these days, usually unannotated, unlabeled data sets. And then once you've trained this model, you can adapt it for any number of sort of downstream applications. And I think this is really where the value comes in, is that you hope that you know all of these different applications will sort of amortize out the cost of producing the model in the first place. And so that's kind of the framework of how to think about it. There's a couple of terms that you mentioned there, and I want to dig into each of them, one being super self-supervision and the another one being these these models, foundation models are scaled. Can you give me a little bit more color on both of those? Absolutely. So I think one way to think about it is to think about these models situated against previous types of approaches to machine learning and AI, because I think that helps clarify why they're different. So normally... We're used to thinking of a model being trained for a specific task, right? So you're trying to do, say, some sentiment analysis task, and you're going to train a model for that specific task. And the way over the past decade, or maybe the most dominant kind of approach to, to doing this, is that you would collect labeled data, so labeled XY pairs for sentiment analysis, and train a model predict why for the next. And, and this has been quite effective. But what's different in this kind of self-supervised paradigm is that what you want to leverage is all of the unlabeled data because there's much more unlabeled data than labeled data, right? So usually to get the labels, you need annotators. So if you think about something like ImageNet, you needed lots of people to you know, produce the image annotation. And in contrast, you know, there's all of this text on the internet, all of these images, all you know, in other modalities, there's lots of code, there's lots of music, audio, so on. And so in self-supervision, 
you want to learn representations of that modality or that type of data, but you don't have labels. So you need to do something else. And so we've seen this kind of family of methods for self-supervision emerge where, you know, in NLP or in language, maybe the way people do it is you take a sequence of words and predict the next word. And you do that a lot of times, and that lets you build good representations of what you know, certain parts of language means or, or these kinds of things. Or in images, you might take an image and, and crop out a region of the image and try to predict that missing part of their image. Or you might take an image and, and augment it in some way and try to detect if the augmented image and the original image are the same. So all of these approaches are trying to take all of this unlabeled data, that's the valuable resource, and make use of it in some way, even though you don't have a well-defined prediction. And then on the second part about scale, let's try to go there. Scale means a lot of things these days that I guess are kind of all conflated because they usually correlate with each other, but maybe it's good to disaggregate them. So I think the, the three types of things that are being scaled, again, all of which maybe sometimes coincide, are the size of the models, so the number of parameters. And this, I think, is the number you encounter the most. In my opinion, maybe the least important of the three numbers, but the thing you encounter the most is like GBD3 is 175 billion parameters. So that's saying, what is the size of the model? That's great. That's one thing that's being scaled. But I think the two, two things to pay more attention to are the resources. So the amount of data. So this is you know part of the point of all of the subscription is that you can use you know, larger and larger amounts of data. And so the, the size of data sets is much larger. So, you know, the, the pile, for example, is this data set that's like 800 gigabytes of data, just text, right? Which is many orders of magnitude more than what we've been used to. And, you know, when I started NLP in 2016, you know, we were used to data sets on the order of you know, a few megabytes or maybe a gigabyte at most. And then finally, there's the compute, right? And I think this is really the resource that, is important to think about because it's the one that's maybe most unevenly distributed across different actors in the space is, you know, we're using far more compute to produce a single model. And, and I think that, you know, and, and compute is going to most directly tie into things like cost or environmental impact, or all of these things, monetary costs, that is, or time to train the models. So, so I think those are the three things being scaled and they have lots of, kind of knockdown effects on how to think about this. Yeah, on the compute, We'll certainly circle back to it because I want to get into some some things that you bring up in the paper of who has access to the compute, who has access to the money, and what roles those folks play in the society while building these models. But we'll we'll circle back. But I do want to finish this topic of just high-level foundation. We talked about the data, we talked about the compute, and we talked about the 175 billion parameters in the context of GPT-3. What why are why are they so powerful? What can we do with them? What, what is, yeah, what's so useful about them? Yeah, I think what, I mean, I think there's two different parts of it. So I think there are some aspects of it where they're providing clear utility, but also a lot of it is because they're produced in this kind of unclear fashion in the sense that it's not self-evident what the model will be capable of doing based on how it's trained. Right, this, this relationship is much more complicated. So it's hard to predict in certain cases what the model is capable of and what it's incapable of. And I think that has also been very interesting. So just to ground it, GPT-3 came out, let's see, May 2020, so two and a half years ago, more or less. But even now, in the past few months, we're still finding new capabilities that GPT-3, the same model that has been out for two and a half years, can do. 
And I don't think that's a you know, reflection of any kind of lack of energy being invested into understanding what this model can do. I think it's just a very complicated object. And there's this sort of emergent phenomena. So phenomena that we didn't readily anticipate the model being able to do, now, now we actually discover it can do. And so I think that's part of the puzzle. But where you already see the clear utility is, I think, a lot of paradigms where you either are, you want to do things in a, in a sample efficient way, right? So usually for any of these downstream applications, which is where much of the concrete impact lies and much of the value for society or for the economy or so on lies, a constraining resource, a very important constraining resource in machine learning is the lack of data within that domain in of the particular use case or so on, or even maybe there's some data, but I think you see a lot of benefits in this kind of few-shot learning paradigm that we hadn't seen before, right? You take the foundation model and then you give it only a few examples for the downstream task and it's able to do that task. I think that's pretty important for making machine learning sort of functional for most of the use cases people would care about where you don't have, you know, millions of data points in for that task, right? So this ability to transfer representations is quite important. The other part of this, and we're seeing this a lot this year, especially, is generative capability, right? So most of the, so, so certainly in research, we've studied models that can generate as opposed to classify or discriminate for a long time. But we've seen that kind of very quick acceleration in generative capabilities and that has materialized in sort of applications where you actually see non-trivial generation, so, you know, things like stable diffusion or so on, you know, really have pushed this in the sense that now we're you know, able to generate these very compelling images or text or you know, maybe in a year or two videos as well and so on. And so I think that means we can start thinking about useful applications where generation is a kind of first-class primitive that you would need. So a lot of the work I've been seeing that's been really exciting to me is on these kind of interactive settings, right? So, so generation naturally facilitates creativity or interaction or so on by its very nature. And so a lot of you know, applications, right? So DeepMind has this very interesting paper a few months ago where they have human story writers and playwrights use a language model to generate screenplays. And obviously the language model standalone is not going to be that compelling or anything for the current capabilities of models, but you're able to kind of co-create in this very interesting way that, you know, can, you know, help these authors of screenplays overcome writer's block or find these kind of moments of inspiration or so on. And I think that's very interesting and very different from how we've thought about the strengths of machine learning and AI historically, which are mostly like, oh, it can do these kind of road tasks that, you know, maybe it scales better than humans or certain things. But I think there's a lot of, you know, I, I think this kind of automation perspective is maybe the wrong way to think about things. And we should be thinking about this kind of more augmentation perspective, that there are a lot of things where humans are already pretty good at it, but the machines just give a different, you know, viewpoint or a different angle and sort of supplement to it in that part. The the name itself of foundation models, I saw a few threads on Twitter, and one of them with Percy Lang, he had mentioned that the foundation models are incomplete, much like a foundation of a building. And that really had an impact on me. I thought about the name itself, and it was it's an apt name because pre-trained. And well, it's, it's more than language, multitask and multimodal and pre-trained is the way they are built, but not necessarily what they are utilized for. Yeah. I think maybe just to think through like where the name came about. So 
we were building this community really more so we wrote a paper, but I think the more material thing for us when we were doing this was we were building a community at Stanford of people who were computer scientists, but more importantly, were a lot of non-computer scientists and non-AI people. And certainly previously, we were using terms like pre-trained or self-supervised or so on, all of which I think are technically very clear. And I don't think that usage of the term foundation model should suggest that these other terms are, there's anything wrong with them or that they, they shouldn't be used. I have no objection or anything at that point. But I think when we were communicating to our colleagues, I think what was clear was, especially pre-trained sort of didn't communicate why they were useful or like why we would care. But if you gave them GPT-3 or you gave them in a clip at that point, they were useful. Like, you know, folks in medicine were actually finding these things compelling, not because, you know, you would literally use GPT-3 for some medical application, but because it was doing things where it allowed them to visualize like, oh, maybe there's like a, or envision that there's like some other, you know, similar kind of model that we could use in medicine that would be helpful. And so I think that experience kept recurring. And so this led us to think about, you know, why are these terms not working? And like, they're clearly correct, right? Like, it's not that we had no terms and that was why we came with with a new term is more so that we felt like the existing terms weren't really emphasizing what we wanted to emphasize and weren't communicating things in a, in a way we found people were getting. And so we actually had a very long internal process where we enumerated about, so one of the interesting things on Twitter is like, you see all of these different alternative proposals of names. We actually have this very long list of about a hundred names that we enumerated, you know, because, you know, there could be say like many synonyms of the word foundation, or you could instead emphasize that they're multitask and so you could like you know you could call them task agnostic models or multitask model or like you know there are all, all kinds of different things you could choose to emphasize and then given the thing concept a specific word you could use to, to instantiate that concept and so we we literally had a tournament of all of the authors voted iteratively sort of just like the world cup until we converged to a single term which was foundation model which sort of got near unanimous support so that was our process. And that's why we've been using the term. I think Percy's point, I really like, because I think it's, it's very important. I think sometimes, especially because one of the interesting things we see with like GPT-3 or ChatGPT or, or some of these other models, is they can sort of look like they're doing everything. And I don't think that's exactly how we should think about them. You know, certainly... They could be used in that way, but that's probably not the most productive way. Like the most, I think what you want is you want them to shoulder a significant amount of the load of what it takes to do this downstream task correctly, right? Much like a foundation of a house, but you don't probably want them to do everything. There's like a lot of other pieces you would want in there to, to make something kind of holistically valuable. And, and we haven't really seen that, I think, but I think as we think about how these models are used in products or in applications. Like when we talk to folks in industry, there's certainly a lot more going on beyond just the foundation model. And so I think the, the analogy is quite apt in that regard, that you know, the foundation model is sort of setting the foundation. And then there's a lot of other things that need to go on for you have a functional house and so on. So you alluded to building a center for research of foundation models. I think that's the group that you're talking about at Stanford. Why, why was it needed? Yeah. So Something like it didn't exist. And I don't know if need is exactly like the the right verb. Like I think what it was was 
it was more organic in the sense that I think people had interests, usually like my general way of thinking about AI, which is probably true of any discipline, but as a person who worked in AI, what I've seen is like, there are things within AI we find interesting as AI research. And our colleagues in other departments may or may not find them interesting because, you know, they probably think whatever they're working on is interesting. And I think what was interesting here was the things we were finding interesting, they were also finding interesting in a very expansive way. Usually, I think, you know, like when people talk about like AI for medical imaging, well, it's the people in medicine and people in AI who jointly have an interest in shields, AI for medical imaging. Here, I think it was just a much more expansive interest that like folks in economics were interested, folks in political science were interested, folks in medicine and law were interested. So I think we saw two types of interest. One from people who wanted to use foundation models for applications that they thought were high stakes and consequential, like folks in medicine and law in particular, where exactly the, the challenge is they have very little annotated data, right? In medicine and law, especially if the annotation process involves a doctor or lawyer to annotate things, obviously it's terribly unscalable. And so that was really compelling for them. And then folks in the social sciences and humanities were interested in understanding the impact of these models and like what effect they were having on or what effect they will have on society or on culture or on these types of things. So in that regard, it feels more analogous to something like the internet, which had like this pervasive, you know, many social scientists studied the internet in various forms or the impacts of the internet. And in the same way, I think these models touch on very human concepts and therefore could have a very clear impact on society or on very essentially human, you know, ideas. And so a lot of folks in social sciences, cognitive science, psychology, and so on, were kind of interested on that side of it. Yeah. And a lot of those folks, I'm assuming, are also a part of writing the paper mm-hmm. itself. How was how was it working with about 100 110, 113 folks from different organizations at Stanford and writing this paper. I believe you were very instrumental in bringing all these realms together and coming up with this content. Yeah. So, so the story, I guess, is like we were building the community. And then I think Percy, I think it was Percy's idea initially was we should each write one page about our respective areas so that we can give it to the other people so that they can quickly understand what we think, right? Because you have like, I don't know, 20 different, this paper has like 26 sections and like 10 different academic departments represented. And so obviously most of us don't know what most of us do. And it was pretty important to just get that kind of common ground for the community itself. And then that was the kind of, kind of impetus for writing the paper itself is if we were anyways doing this, maybe we should write it as a, as a full paper. So I think it was challenging in the sense that you have to kind of coordinate understanding, right? Like before the paper, it's not like I could point to, oh, this is what a foundation model means and so on, right? I mean, that was part of what the paper was doing. And so at in the writing process, you needed to kind of coordinate how people were thinking about things because people have very different mental models or coming from very different backgrounds. Um, you have a lot of folks who work in areas adjacent to AI, but aren't really AI people. And so you like technically there's also some some kind of clarification of what the scope is, right? Like the paper is not about all of AI, it's about foundation model. And so that's also kind of an important thing, right? If you're talking to a colleague in economics, like maybe they're thinking about AI as kind of one concept, 
right? Because it makes sense from their perspective, AI is just one thing amongst many other things that we study. And so you need to sharpen the resolution in certain places when it comes off as producing. Hmm. Let's take a mini detour. I want to talk a little bit about what have you been recently working? I think the the opportunities and risks paper came out in 2021, but recently you released a paper. It's called Picking on the Same Person. Does algorithmic monoculture lead to outcome homogenization? Can you also give me main ideas behind this particular paper? Yeah. Yeah. So the, the, the title is definitely a mouthful, but uh, think about the two concepts that are mentioned in the title, algorithmic monoculture and outcome homogenization. And then I'll talk about the kind of findings and so on. The first is this kind of theme we see in AI, actually even broader than AI sort of use of technology, that we share a lot of stuff, right? And the word sharing has a positive connotation, right? We share foundation models, we share ImageNet, we share PyTorch, you know, and this is great, right? There's so many benefits we get from that type of sharing, right? It would be completely infeasible for every computer vision paper to reconstruct ImageNet. It would be completely idiotic as well. But the key thing is we were worried about if we're building all of these downstream systems built on these kind of shared components, will that mean that the downstream systems all fail the same user? And so to illustrate this, and this is what we call the harm of outcome homogenization, think about the setting of high rates. So this is actually a very concrete example. You apply to a bunch of different banks to become a banker, let's say. So you send in your resume. Each of those banks needs to make a decision of whether they're going to interview you or not. And these days, a lot of companies, including banks and, and most of the U.S. economy, most of the major U.S. companies, use algorithms to inform or make that initial decision of who they interview. And if all of the banks are using the same algorithm, so because most companies don't have technical kind of engineering expertise, they usually purchase these algorithms from some third-party vendor. So if everyone is buying a particular company's algorithm then you might worry that you will get the same decision from every company. And, and you know, one case, that means you get interviews everywhere. But in the other, the one we are concerned with, you get rejected everywhere, right? So if it's literally the case that everyone is using the same algorithm, same deterministic function, then, then of course you'll get the same outcome. But it's a little bit more nuanced in AI if you share the same, say, training data. But the actual downstream model is different, but it shares the same training data is that enough to kind of homogenize the outcomes? So that's what we studied empirically in a few different settings. And what we found is when you build systems by sharing more training data, as opposed to sharing less training data, you do see more homogenous outcomes. And when you use systems that share a foundation model, as opposed to systems built from scratch, so therefore don't share a foundation model, we found that the, the results are a little bit more complicated. So how you use the foundation model turned out to be pretty important for for determining how homogenous things were. But I think it's a kind of general concept that we wanted to introduce. So, you know, how do we think about these practices we see in AI that we do share things? And in general, that's a very positive practice. Are there specific harms that arise from it, right? Especially as we go in this foundation model paradigm, like, is that broader, you know, these days, like if you look at something like BERT, right? If you go to BERT on Hugging Face, that's been downloaded like 20 million times this month. Now, obviously, a lot of us do research and so on, but there are a lot of products that use that specific model checkpoint, right? Or lots of people, lots of different startups use 
GPT-3, right? The single endpoint open AI provider, right? Because of that, is that going to mean that we see a lot of different downstream failures that are attributable to this common shared foundation model? And I think that's a type of thing we want to understand in this work and sort of this was kind of an initial stab at trying to do. And is this lack of diversity with the homogenization, you reduce the lack of diversity between the products that you build for the end consumer, the outcomes and the results will always be the same. And because of that, we can potentially have, we can marginalize some of those communities or some individuals specifically. Is that is that really the risk? here that you're alluding to? Yeah, I think that's precisely right. Like one thing we were trying to think about here is, I think one interesting part of this is that you can study it at the individual level, right? So you can say for individual, when they interact with different machine learning systems or algorithms or whatever, are they uniformly like having negative experiences, right? So in a different type of setting, right? You know, if you think about buying a voice assistant, a voice assistant, right? So you have, you know, some voices, you know, you can buy Siri or Alexa or Google Home or whatever. And, you know, it would be bad, especially bad if every system doesn't work for you, right? You know, as long as there's one system that usually works for you, maybe that's enough. Like, obviously, we hope that all the systems work for you, perhaps. But if at least for every individual, there's at least one system that works for them, at least in that type of setting, maybe that's enough. And so we're worried about the individuals for whom no system works for them, right? And so they're entirely closed out of, say, this kind of base. And one of the things to understand there is, like, how much does that align with and how much does it differ with other forms of established historical marginalization, right? You know, you can do this analysis at the individual level. And one of the things we found in the paper, at least in some settings, is that these individual level effects exceed what you see when you look at racial groups or gender groups as well, right? So it seems like there might be some other individuals outside those marginalized groups who are also uniformly experiencing negative outcomes. And then a lot of individuals within those you know, groups that have been marginalized historically and in a much broader sense who are also uniformly getting these negative outcomes. And so we wanted to understand, like, is... Are these types of technology compounding existing historical marginalization or are they kind of creating new forms of marginalization as well? And I think both of those are important things to be aware of. There's also a blog post. Essentially, it was a call to action arguing it for a review board for when you are releasing a foundation model. Can you talk a little bit about that? Yeah. So I think the backdrop for that work was we were trying to think about you know, what are the norms for this space, right? And I think in general, there are very few norms, right? This is a new area. And to the extent there are norms, they're often set by the first actor in the space, right? So there are certain norms that might emerge just sort of because the first actor needs to do something and that sets a kind of precedent and people follow that precedent. So that's not surprising. But, you know, especially as this space becomes consequential, in, it's necessary that we have norms and standards for how, how things are happening here. And right now in their absence, especially on this topic of release, we see very divergent practices, right? So the claim is not that everyone needs to act the same. In fact, that's probably not what we want. But the claim is that different organizations, there should at least be some common analysis or, or common you know, thinking or or guardrails, or however you want to think about this, right? So let's be very precise. So let's look at language models of how are different organizations releasing language models. And I think what's interesting is you see the entire spectrum 
right? So there are some organizations who are fully releasing the model entirely in the open. So they're, you know, Meta, for example, when they release OPT, which is a language model, the model is fully available. The entire checkpoint is available. They wrote a paper about it. And this is great in the sense that it's very transparent. It's very reproducible. It allows for a lot of great downstream science, but you might worry that maybe there's potential for that model to be misused, right? And right now, I think the analysis of misuse is, is also very nascent. So, so that's one end of the spectrum. Then somewhere in the middle, you have companies like OpenAI, let's say, where you can definitely query GPT-3 or ChatGPT or, or Dolly 2, but you don't have full access to it, right? And so if you wanted to build on top of it, you know, you're only having this black box access and that's basically all you can do. And then you have companies like Google or DeepMind where the you know, Tom or Gopher, there's no access to anything except Google and DeepMind. And I think especially as we talk about the space becoming more and more productionized, we should in general sort of anticipate trending in that direction that things will become more closed if we just look at how other products and spaces are, right? You know, you know, the algorithms behind Google search or, or Twitter's, you know, feed and so on are not public, right? And we know very little about them. So that's one type of norm, like one type of trend, which we were kind of worried about is like, we didn't want this to become fully closed. So I think once things become fully closed, it's hard to have a lot of transparency and change things. And they sort of solidify in decision-making is kind of restricted to the particular entity. And so on the other side, you know, in other parts of AI research and just academic community in general, you see more openness, right? Like I think one of the great things about, you know, deep learning is that a lot of the research has become more open in the sense that, you know, with things like PyTorch and so on, like people share code and share how they're building things. And that's very important for the research to build on top of itself. And so I think that was the kind of setting as we saw Everyone had their own practice of how they chose to release. It was not clear why any entity, like, again, this is a, the point is like, it's fine if different entities arrive at different decisions, as long as we understand how they came to those decisions and that they were at least thinking about the right set of things, right? Of course, people can arrive at different judgments given you know, the same set of things, but we want to make sure that people are, are considering these things and in some sense, there probably should be more agreement than there is right now. Like, there's almost no agreement. And so that's why we thought about this conversation of norms and like the proposal we had, which you mentioned of like this kind of review board was one way to try to, to operationalize things. I think has a lot of attractive properties of, you know, trying to create agreement while allowing for, for disagreement and so on. But even still is a very hard thing to implement because you're, talking about, you know, trying to build some amount of consensus against between organizations that also have broader incentives that, that are different from each other, right? You know, it's very hard to get, you know, Google, Microsoft, and Meta on the same page on anything, right? It's not surprising to anyone. And so our hope is, you know, to strike some kind of middle ground where we don't just concede that nothing is possible because these entities have different incentives, but we try to broker some, some way to... Uh, Move things forward. Yeah, at least have some consensus in terms of either the trained model or the checkpoint or the paper, the data, the right, the weights, the whatever. Right. This brings us to the reason we are here today is on the risks and opportunities of foundation models. I think you alluded to 
the opportunities earlier with what is possible with foundation models and with a little bit of fine tuning and a few shot learning setting, there's copious amounts of things one can do. There's two terms in the intro, in the abstract of the paper that stood out that you've also alluded to earlier in the conversation is the homogenization emergence. Can you define those for me? And can we dig a little bit deeper into what those are? Homogenization, you have done a little bit more than emergence. So maybe start with emergence. Yeah, absolutely. So by emergence, I think we can think of this in, in different ways. So with the way we talk about it in the paper, which I think is one kind of lens, is you train the model on all of this data. It's clear that it's going to acquire something. It's just unclear what that is. Right. And so the capabilities it does acquire, because they're hard to predict from the way the model is trained, we refer to that kind of relationship as emergence, that the, the capabilities of what the model can do is an emergent phenomenon that arises from its training. And the reason you use the word emergent is to, to kind of connote that it's it's hard to predict or it's hard to it can be surprising in many ways, right? I think. You know, something people seem to forget is like, you know, if you look at language modeling as kind of most salient class of foundation models, right? Before GPT-3, or maybe before GPT-2, let's say, people, or, or BERT, like if, if you just look at before 2018, the way language modeling was understood is you, you do language modeling as this kind of auxiliary thing, maybe to help, like maybe you're trying to do a translation, and so you, you're translating from, you know, Spanish to Chinese. You take your translated sentence in Chinese, and then you use a you know language model to kind of smooth the probability so that you pick a, a you know Chinese sentence that's likely under the grammar of Chinese or so on, and so you don't pick a, you know something that makes no sense in Chinese. So language modeling you know has a long history in the field, but it was never really kind of important in sort of how we build models, right? It was like peripheral at that. So I think the entire concept that you can learn such complex representation from language modeling as the task, like predicting the next word as the task, was entirely on, like in the entire field, like there was no, no such belief, right? A couple of papers in the early mid-2010s on this, but like, you know, if you look before 2010, no one was really talking about, oh, you'll do language modeling on a lot of data, and then you can do all of these downstream things. Like that entire conception didn't exist. So I think that is the type of thing we're trying to describe in the paper. So after the paper, we wrote this other paper with folks at Google and DeepMind led by Jason Wei on specifically emergent ability. And in that paper, we had a more specific definition of emergence, which I also like, which is you know broadly this idea that quantitative changes, so in particular scaling in a quantitative sense, can lead to these new qualitative phenomena. And so a lot of how we, we showed this in the papers, so the paper is kind of surveying different things that we classified as emergent phenomena in the field, is you, you look at these kind of graphs where on the x-axis, you're going to plot scale. Maybe that's measured in model size or compute or so on. Sort of doesn't matter as we can show in the paper because these things are very correlated. So you plot that. And on the y-axis, you're going to plot some notion of performance. So maybe the accuracy on some downstream paths. Right. So most of the time, in most settings, this relationship is very kind of predictable. Like as you use more compute, you will scale in a kind of predictable way. What the shape of the curve is maybe is, is going to de depend a lot. 
what we pointed out is there are a lot of cases in language models, and now you know, there are examples for other modalities as well, where you see these kind of sharp phase transitions. So initially, it's very flat. The model up until a certain size is basically getting random chance. And then after that, sort of very rapidly shoots up, right? You know, it's sort of, and the reason it's called a phase transition or is analogous to what you see in physics. Like, you know, you have water that's that's a liquid, and then until you get to a certain point, it suddenly becomes a gas or becomes a solid, depending on if you made it hotter or cold, and the temperature and stuff, and pressure and all these things, right? So that was the point. Is like there are all of these phenomena in the field, and Jason has gone on to do a like even more exhaustive listing of this of like all kinds of downstream paths where we see up until a certain scale, we, we, we don't really have, and like we're unable to, you know, like even the phenomena of being able to prompt language models is emergent in this sense, right? When we had smaller, you know, I think people, because it's become so salient, have forgotten that like two and a half years ago or say three years ago, the word in context learning did not exist because the concept didn't exist because you probably couldn't do it, or at least no one had tried on like smaller language models. Like the idea that you would put in some examples in text and then ask the model to do, you know, put in a bunch of question answering pairs in, in the prompt, the language model, and then put in the next question and it would fill in the next answer. Like that conception didn't exist. So I think all of these types of things are what we mean by emergence. Like these things where broadly the shared theme is that they, are things that are hard to predict or are surprising capabilities that arise. Or it could also be harm. We haven't seen as much of this emergent harms, but I think this is also something I'm pretty interested in. I was like, about what kind of harms arise at scale that we don't really see at smaller scale? Because that would be very important to understand. So that's the first half emergence. Homogenization, again, in the paper, we meant something. I think there's two levels which we can talk about homogenization. One is kind of in how we build models, right? So these days, a lot of the models are like transformers with self-supervision, with you know, gradient-based optimization on lots of data, right? The, the modeling approach is much more homogenous than, say, even five to 10 years ago when we had like, you know, in vision, you had your CNNs and in language, you had your LSTMs. And if you go like another decade back, it was even more heterogeneous, right? So the way we do modeling these days is, is much more homogenous. And this has benefits and drawbacks, right? The drawbacks are that it kind of solidifies a lot of the paths, like that we build all of this kind of infrastructure to optimize transformers well. And it's going to be hard for some other approach to outcompete it because, of, you know, you sort of given all of these additional resources to this paradigm. And so for something else to arise, it has this much larger hill to overcome. So that's the, I think, one of the central drawbacks when you watch. The benefits are that you can, there's like conceptual benefits that like people in the different sub areas now can talk to each other in a much more fluid way, right? The methods in NLP language, NLP vision, robotics, even in like protein modeling and so on now are much more similar. And so you see much more fluid transfer of ideas. I think that's very good. And you can also start building the remaining surrounding infrastructure better, right? So, you know, if you think about another setting, right, of operating systems, right, we have, you know, Windows and Linux and Mac. And because they have solidified, right, like, 
we're able to build other parts of the stack on top of them because we can trust that they are there. And it's not like tomorrow, you know, Windows and Mac are going to disappear and we'll have some other operating system, right? So I think there's this kind of trade-off that like, as you're building infrastructure, you want to solidify things, but it's also very dangerous of prematurely solidify things, right? It's surely not the case that like, you know, transformers are forever going to be the architecture, right? And we are sort of solidifying pieces and trying to sort of entrenching these models, which makes it hard to, to shift out of them in the future, even though there might be things that these models are very poor at, right? Like, you know, there are important concepts like causality or so on that like, you know, this paradigm is not good in, in any useful sense, right? Maybe there, there is actually some amount of causal type stuff you can do in this paradigm. But if you're trying to think about how would we build models with, you know, that can reason cause out causally in a reliable fashion. Like this is not what we would do. And if we believe causality is very important, then it's not clear how causality or these other things get integrated in, right? So you might need to break away at this kind of foundation a little bit to, to allow these other things to come in. And so I think that's a tricky piece too, is with all this homogenization, it's like whether it's good or bad, I think is kind of hard to assess in the moment and will kind of need time to see how things pan out. Yeah. Hmm. yeah, on the causality thing, maybe I'm not following entirely. Are you saying that the way, because of the hom homogenization, these models now are designed, there's no room for finding or coming up with causal relationships between like an inference call or... So, so I, I don't, I, yeah, I don't think... It's that strong. Like, I think there are ways to do causality in this paradigm. And I think people are actively looking on this. I think all I meant is, you know, if causality was the thing you thought was super important, I don't think you would arrive at this paradigm. I think there are other ways to do machine learning and so on where you can do causal inference in a much more kind of first order, pure way where it's much easier to do. I mean, so hard, but easier relatively to do causal inference properly. Here, I think these models have other strengths. And I don't think the strength I would ascribe to them is their ability to do causal inference. They have lots of others, right? And I think causality will matter, right? Like, I think, you know, if you are going to deploy systems in high stakes settings, especially, causality is quite important. But how you go from where we are to Things that retain the strengths of existing models, but also can reason properly, I think is, is non-obvious. And so I think that's the kind of thing is like, you, you know, another way to think about it is like, as you homogenize, you sort of commit more and more to current solution, current, you know, optimal per se, right? And so as you, you know, but that optimal might be a local optimal, right? And so how do you escape that local optimal and find, you know, you know the global you know, optimum? I think it's the... Is the question, right? So I, th I think that's the challenge. Just like, I think right now there are strong incentives. And I think the, the challenge is we don't really have these very compelling alternatives. I think if there were more compelling alternatives and under that kind of condition, we were investing super heavily into this paradigm, I think then it would be kind of more concerning. I think until we get those kind of strong competitors, it's hard to say what you should do other than invest in the current paradigm, right? So I think that's the the tricky part of like this kind of balancing act for the field of law. Because of this unforeseen 
emergent behavior that you alluded to earlier that's coming out and the impacts of the homogenization to whatever degree, whether it may be causal, whether interpretability, whether marginalization, they all speak some sort of social impact. And what are you imagining from what kind of social impact is is possible? Yeah, I think that's a great question. So this is sort of the central question of my own research is like, what is the social impact of foundation models and AI more generally, specifically funny. And I think the first point, at least in how I reason about this, is I think a lot of the impact is driven by the concrete applications we'll see. And I think there is still quite early in the sense that I think what we've already seen is that our buyers are quite poor on where the social impact and where the products and so on that will drive this impact will be built versus where we might think they would be built before it happened, right? So let me give you an example, right? I think one of the clearest examples of concrete impact, I would say largely positive in nature, has been uh, GitHub Copilot, right? So this is model trained on code that now is used by, you know, trained on, on code on GitHub that is used by millions or, or even more programmers around the world that has shown kind of clear benefits in accelerating the rate at which code is written, even for things, mostly for things that are fairly kind of rote in nature, but also a lot of complicated things. And I think one thing, so first of all, this being a super consequential application, all of the ones we've already seen is maybe not something I would expect. Like I would have thought things in like the text space would happen first because a lot of the modeling happened for text or code, but I don't think that's really what we saw. But further, I think one thing that was very striking to me is that talking to some of the best engineers I know, I think GitHub Copilot has been most useful for them compared to sort of other engineers. And I think that has been really striking. So, so Google also has a sort of similar internal model that they wrote a blog post about where they also kind of talk about for their engineers, like how it was very productive and the kind of efficiency benefits and so on. But I think that was striking is like, you know, and it suggests that like the analysis is not that GitHub Copilot is a better programmer than, than the people I know who are, who are pretty good programmers, but it's that the these programmers are able, better able to build internal models of what Copilot can do and therefore actively delegate certain things in a reliable fashion to Copilot. And then like they, you know, in some sense, their superior understanding of programming allows them to model Copilot itself effectively and therefore understand, you know, how they should position themselves relative to Copilot and like where, where they can trust Copilot, where they, they don't want to use Copilot because the act of verifying Copilot's code would be too, wouldn't save them anything in the first place. All of those types of like meta level reasoning that they can do is very interesting because I feel like most, I don't know, the analysis I would have had by default is that, oh, GitHub Copilot will be helpful for like earlier programmers or introductory programmers because, you know, their programming skill is, is weaker and like Copilot maybe knows a bunch of things that they don't know, right? Like about syntax or so on, right? So I think these types of things suggest to me that the way we reason about impact will need to largely be driven by just observing early parts of that impact happen. And I think 
right now, my personal opinion is my own prior and probably most people's priors are very poor for predicting where things are going. Another very concrete example of this is Jacob Seinhardt, who's a professor at Berkeley, did this very, his group ran this very interesting forecasting type of study. So what they were trying to do is they built this data set called MAP, which is a bunch of competition math problems that they thought models would be very poor at. And indeed, when they released the data set, models were very poor at them. And then they had a bunch of professional forecasters whose, whose job is to predict trends within, within data. Look at these trends of like, oh, if you looked at the previous era of models, like where, where are things going and like how quickly will models improve on this math data set. And so they predicted, I think in like 2025, models would get 50% accuracy on math, you know, based on all of these things. And they had incentives to get this prediction right. And then they were terribly wrong in the sense that like by the end of 2021, I think we already had models that eclipsed 50%, right? And I think what we should take from that story again is like this general theme that like in predicting social impact, I think we somehow just don't, I think it's very similar to what we saw with the internet or with other things that like, I think we just don't understand, like we don't have the right concepts yet. And so I think that's the tricky part. Like, I think what we do have is we do understand different classes of harm and different classes of benefits, right? But we just don't know which ones are going to be more and less important, right? So, you know, just to enumerate different classes of harm, right? There's like harms of like bias and fairness, right? That's a very important class. There's harms of misuse, right? So, you know, it, the harms of bias and fairness are, in a certain sense, not really intentional in the sense that, you know, the, the person deploying the system doesn't have an incentive for the system to be unfair. You know, maybe they don't have enough of an incentive to care about its unfairness, but you know, they're not trying to actively make it unfair at the very least, right? Whereas on the misuse side, you might be worried about people using like a language model to generate disinformation or a vision model to generate deep fakes or all these things, right? Where they have an incentive to cause harm. So we have these classes and underneath them, there's all kinds of specific things that people have thought about. Similarly, things about privacy and security, things about the environmental impact of training these models, going back to this example of co-pilot kind of, legal ramifications of training on copyrighted or on licensed data. And, and that is currently being litigated at the moment. So I think we know what the concepts are. We just don't know how to, to weight them and how to know, like, are the important applications going to be in, in medicine or not? Are they going to be in, like, in what domain? Like, I think a lot of this will shape the nature of the impact, right? Like, you know, taking another thing, AlphaFold, right? AlphaFold has had this tremendous con like impact in, in shaping things that I think would have been very difficult to foresee before it was created and before seeing how people responded to it and so on. So I think we're very early, but I think of the class of things we should be like. So I think trying to directly predict from what we know about foundation models to what their impact will be, will be a hard direction. The, the way I think about things right now, so, so that's sort of a pessimistic take in the sense that I, I think this, this type of relationship is hard to understand. Of course, we should still understand it. What I think we can do is we can look to what things are close enough analogies from what we've already seen in human history and try to understand why things are good analogies versus bad analogies. Because you can analogize foundation models to lots of things, right? You could analogize them to other types of technology like the internet. You could analogize them to other types of social infrastructure like bridges. You could analogize them to other 
multi-purpose things like water or oil or steel, right? It's not clear which of those you should, they, they share properties with each of those. Like it's not invalid to analogize them to any of those. Nonetheless, it's probably not helpful to think of them as water, right? They clearly are not as essential as water and probably the economics of how they're produced and so on is nothing like water. So that has been the thing we've been trying to think about. So I think the classes I find most compelling so far are the ones that are close in the sense that they're also technology, computing technology, like operating system and the internet. And I think the class that an economist would refer to these things as is general purpose technology in the sense that economists, you know, look at sort of, so, so I think general purpose technologies have these very important effects on the economy because they accelerate the rate of change, right? So there's technology, you know, like it's kind of the difference between speed and acceleration in physics or like velocity and acceleration in physics. Like they, they have effects. They, they change the velocity at which society is moving at rather than just changing where like, you know, velocity changes where we are, like the distance in the same sense, acceleration changes the velocity. And so they're, they're accelerants in the sense that they change the velocity. And so that's why most economists care about general purpose technology because they just turn out to be much more important over time than, than other types of technology that, that don't change the velocity. So we've been talking a lot to Eric Brynjolfsson, who's a, who's a economist here at Stanford, who's done a lot of work on digital economy. And, and yeah, I think it's been kind of interesting to understand from him like and his work over the years of like, what is this analogy and like how crisp can we make things? Like, can we really show the sense? Like, I think we have yet to see these analyses in the field. Of like, what are the, what is the economic impact of these models? And even to assess that, like, what types of things are you looking at? Like, what products are you looking at that are, that are accruing this economic impact and these types of things? So I think that's going to be very interesting in the coming years. Like, I think we're at the stage where we do have some products that depend on these models. Those products are having impact. And so now we can make much more concrete analysis. And I think that'll shape how we think about things going forward because now we'll actually have concrete. So I think that's just a general belief I have is like, we should really try to be concrete in a lot of these analyses. Like we are capable of measuring all of the right things and figuring things out. And I think that's more important than the sort of philosophical analysis. I think you can make very compelling philosophical analyses that this is going in basically any direction, right? You can point to certain aspects and think this is going to intensify historical marginalization. I think they're very compelling analyses doing that direction. You can also make arguments that like, oh, this is going to be like, you know, electricity or something and have all of these positive impacts, right? I think all of those analyses are going to be wrong just because it's hard for any analysis to be a priori right. And like, I think what's going to be right is just to concretely observe things and then and then just see how things are going. I think, I think this kind of grounded, concrete view is, is pretty useful and is feasible. Sure. Yeah. You, you basically just answered my next question, which is how I think you alluded to that it's hard to measure the social impact at the moment. Right. But how do we measure it? Which is we just have to observe. And as time goes on and as foundation models get adopted and utilized in different applications, we measure the result and see what kind of impact they're having and course correct along the way. That's right. And I, and I think just to say on that point, like I think observing doesn't mean we shouldn't intervene or that we should be 
like there's an interesting nu- nuance here that like I think observing suggests that we should take a reactive mindset, right? And in a certain sense, it implies we take a reactive mindset. That of course, if you're going to observe something, you have to wait for it to happen, and therefore you're going to react to it. So in a certain narrow sense, indeed, you're being reactive. But I think we should intervene. It's just not clear how we should intervene, right? Like, I think right now, we haven't seen how the technology is being deployed. So I think it's like the only things we know are sort of the broader incentives of different organizations, right? We haven't seen like what they're doing. So so if we're going to make a judgment of like, oh, we should intervene into the sense of accelerating the de- deployment or or inhibiting the deployment of foundation models and products is like mostly an, an analysis of what we think the incentives are in this space, in my mind, which is fair. But I think like we should be like, and, and, and this is something we've been doing at CRFM is like trying to move into the kind of policy space or norms or all of these kind of ways of trying to sort of structurally intervene, right? So I think there are interventions where you you look at a specific application and try to change something there or changes where like you think that there's something kind of structurally wrong and you try to change the structure itself, right? So I think that's also something we want to think about. It's like, I think the incentives in certain places are wrong and, and probably will pan out in, in harmful ways. So I think we want to partially observe things and to not be premature, but also kind of intervene at the structural level. Like think about, yeah, how, how do we make certain types of, like one type of thing that I've been thinking quite a bit about is this question, and it came up with the homogenization thing too, is, is attribution for foundation models is harder. So this can mean two different things that are both related. One is, when the models generate content, so when they're using generative something, whose whose voice are you attributing that to, right? Certainly, and I think we're seeing this a lot in the art space, right? The where you can see this very clear connection. Model generates something, perhaps because it's been explicitly prompted to in the style of a particular artist, right? How do we reason about that, and how do you even attribute that, right? Because in most cases, you won't say right in the style of X or. Or, or, or paint in the style of what? Just say, you know, do you know, write a story, and it, how do you attribute like who, whose work in the training data, you know, is being surfaced and in, in, in print time? And, and and even if you could do that attribution, what should you do with it? Right? Like, should you do you use that to try to argue that the people in the training data who are more influential should be somehow compensated for their work? And if so, what is the what is the you know, framework doing that or all of these things I think are like there's like underlying technical questions but if we're able to solve the technical questions there are structural things of like what should we do and how should we evolve the space because I think to me the top level thing is like the paradigm exists and un- under one analysis because it's extremely exploitative that you take all of the data that exists you don't have to compensate anyone for any of the data and then you use it and accrue value. And so I think something should have about that should change. That's not clear to me how it should change, right? Like, is the way it should change be that like people should be able to remove their data from it? That seems like a sensible thing, certainly in the EU that would comply with GDPR and, and broader ideas thinking there. Should you compensate people? There are some folks at Microsoft that are trying to think about this kind of compensation scheme how you would try to do that. So I think all of these are like open structural things where you should intervene. But 
it just feels very hard to be, make strong recommendations. Like I think you can make weak recommendations already that are not terribly useful, but you, know, you can do it at the moment. Like, oh, you know, you probably want the model not to generate toxic content and, and so on. But like, you know, which is good. Like we should do that too. Like these recommendations and, and broader principles our value. But yeah, I think we're just a little bit too early. And and it's kind of crazy that like, you know, we're trying to think about like the I mean it, it's too early in one sense, but it's like reflective of the technology in a different sense. Like we've shrunk the research to the deployment gap tremendously. Right. You know, we're talking about a model at the forefront of research like GPT3 being highly productionized. Basically, you know, or like chat GPT or something within within a few days or weeks or or like whatever. Like so I think that's also gonna be an interesting thing to reckon with is like what is this? Yeah, like how do we do things responsibly when we move so fast? And I don't necessarily know if the reaction is trying to move slower. Certainly that's one type of option. I think there's strong incentive to move fast as well. But even if like I, I think I subscribe to the kind of view that like we should be able to do things responsibly even if we move move fast and we we just need to figure out how to do that. Having a process in place or having a strong arbiter in place and perhaps even strong values that we can align to. Do you do you have any opinions on foundation models playing a role in AutoML? I think my co-host Adam interviewed the folks from Tab PFN a couple of days ago, which is in my mind venturing into automated machine learning using foundation models, sub-second or close to one-second inference times. How do you foresee, like, how do you foresee foundation models playing a role in auto machine learning? I think it's an interesting space. I, I have it's not a, really a space I work in too much, but it is a space a few people have asked me about. And I've also been seeing some startups move in that direction. I think it's kind of interesting to me. It seems like there's some alignment in the sense that it seems like the things that are necessary for AutoML to work well, being able to do things in a kind of general purpose way, but rapidly adapt to information and so on, is kind of similar to what we have with foundation models. I do wonder the relationship between the type of scales you want to work at, the inference time, and they're how compatible they are and how much they can be made compatible. I think there's a lot of, yeah, I think a, a lot of stuff that I've been seeing in on the side of people who develop foundation models has been really getting inference down. And I think there's been a lot of progress there. And it seems like that would be a kind of necessary, but clearly not sufficient condition for this to be useful for AutoML. Besides that, yeah, I think, I think the other thing is like, it seems that the modalities here are different, but don't have to be in the sense that it seems like a lot of the foundation models, especially that get public attention, are in you know images, text, these kind of things where it seems like a lot of the value for AutoML is in tables and structured data and, and these types of things. I haven't seen some works that try to port over the ideas. It doesn't seem like it seems like this idea of doing tabular representation learning has been floated around quite a bit, and it seems very feasible and, and seems like we're making progress there. Like there have been some efforts here to also think about similar representation learning approaches for graphs and for time series and other things that are more maybe closer in, in, in certain sense. So I think that's doable. One thing I wanted to point out is some of the work out of Chris Ray's group here, which has been looking at maybe not auto ML, but other parts of the ML pipeline that are usually not like 
that that are important but often don't get valorized in the same way. So like using foundation models to do data cleaning or data processing or so on, right? And I think there it's actually been super interesting because you can, they actually are very good because they can handle the kind of messiness that you see in real data distributions pretty effectively in a way that's hard to like, you know, and you see this even sometimes on like Twitter demos of using GPT-3 of like, you can use GPT-3 to generate these very complicated regular expressions for all kinds of messy data that humans would have a hard time, you know, generating the regex for. So I think that is also, that surprised me. Like they, they seem to do much better than a lot of the kind of standardized approaches to data cleaning and data processing. So I had not expected it to be at that level. Right now, it's maybe still too, too slow in some settings. But it seems like, yeah, I don't know. I, I think this just goes back to the original theme that like, I feel like this space, even as someone deeply embedded in it, is very hard to predict. Right, right. We had we had Dr. Mehdi Behrami on the podcast from a Fujitsu Research Lab, and they came up with BERT sort, which is essentially using BERT to ordinarily encode values in your particular column for in a tabular sense. So for example, you have data set of a column that has January, February, April, May, or whatever. And if you were to label encode that using Python natively, which uses NumPy, it will it would numerically or alphabetically rather encode that. But using BERT and all the context BERT has it actually will, you know, ascribe value of one to January, two to February, so on and so forth, which is the correct encoding. So the applications of foundation models making it into downstream tasks, which which you have alluded to multiple times, it's unpredictable and at the same time very useful. Yeah, and I think that's also the thing is like those use cases, even though they're not like. You know, there's probably no New York Times article that's going to be written about data processing as opposed to like, I don't know, self-driving cars or something. But like, they're super valuable, right? In an economic sense, in a social sense. And so I think that's also something I would really like to see, to see the, the community shift towards is to like foreground these things that are in every sense valuable. Just, you know, maybe they're not like, it's not like our language models conscious, like maybe they aren't, they aren't going to catch the public attention, or whatever, but like in every sense, we should be talking about these types of things that are materially important, but we, we seem to not do Like we seem to instead talk about like, oh, our language models conscious or sentient or like some other things, right? Which are like a super interesting thing too. But like, I think this is also a, a sign of maturity. Like I feel like when I talk to folks in systems, people in systems, just want to get things that work and things like systems people attract way less attention than AI people. They just actually build things that work. And so no one talks about them because they actually do what they're supposed to do. Meanwhile, AI people build lots of things, most of which don't work, but get a lot of attention because we, we take on these grand challenges. But like, I, th I think that's going to be interesting is, you know, a foundation model, like a, a term we thought about for foundation models that is similar is to call them like, infrastructure models or infra models maybe sounds it's sort of similar in a lot of ways and like i think if we can get these models to behave in the same way the same standards we have in other parts of computing of like how we build operating systems how we build you know chips like they actually have very 
they're very reliable and they work in a sort of seamless way, so seamless that you don't have to talk about them anymore. I think that's the kind of goal in a certain sense, is like to, to build something in, in that kind of aesthetic, right? Now, of course, the types of things we deal with in AI are much messier and certain, right? It's hard to think of something dealing with human language that's going to be as, you know, robust as like, you know, your like sorting function or like uh, sorting integers. But somewhere, you know, I think that should be the kind of aspiration in certain sense of like that level of reliability and sort of just kind of it does it right. And we don't have to talk about it because we can talk about other things because we've just figured out how to do stuff. I think it would be pretty compelling. if we could do it. Before we hop off, is there anything else that you want to share? What are you working on? What's next for you? And additionally, where can people follow you? Yeah. So to the last point, folks can, can find me on both my website and also on Twitter. I say some things here and there. So, I mean, interesting. But yeah, I, I just thought I'd shout out this this recent work we did on evaluation. So, you know, in theme I brought up several times, like, oh, we should have concretized things. You know, in the field, we discuss all of these different things. But, you know, sometimes you can just measure it and just figure out what the truth is of like, where things are at the moment. And so we've done this work called Helm on evaluating a lot of the prominent language models. I think that's helped really concretize, like, what are the capabilities? What are the harms? What are the limitations? And you can just see all of the numbers on the website. We have a long paper again, but you can also just look at the results. And so I think, I hope we go in that direction of we just measure a lot of things. We are holistic in that measurement. We think about all of the different social dimensions. I think that's been an exciting work. Great. And what's your website and your Twitter handle? So they're my first and last name. So Rishi Vamasani is my Twitter handle. And my website is stat.github.io. Thanks, Rishi. And I'll post those with the show notes as well. I had a lot of fun reading this paper, which took me a while to read it too. And going through your background and all the stuff that you've worked on, everyone should go and read this paper for themselves. It's a, it's really a literature review of what's happening with foundation model and they give you a good understanding, gave me a good understanding of where the field is. Thank you for writing this alongside with 112 co-authors and thank you for making time for this podcast. I really appreciate it. Yeah, it's been fantastic. This is a great interview and it's great to talk through all of these different things. Yeah, thanks for having me. 